0: turn with you now to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And those around him saw what was going to happen, and said to him, "Lord, shall we strike them with a sword?" And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, "Permit even this." And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we recognize our inadequacy to To recognize and to see your word. Lord, we are ignorant indeed. And Lord, we know enough to know that none of these things are self evident. In fact, Lord, that your word is hidden from those who are outside, those who do not know you. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that anyone ever understands any part of your word in its truth and entirety ever comes to a saving understanding of what they have heard and what they have read. Lord, this day we pray that you would bring great light to us, particularly in this very, very dark hour. Indeed, the hour of darkness that is uh, given, explained, revealed to us. We pray that we would see Christ truly, even as he is revealed in the darkness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Last time we considered that first half of the time in Gethsemane of Jesus being alone with his disciples. And he told his disciples to watch and pray with him, that they enter not into temptation, that they they pray with him just a little bit. But they were not able to do so. They fell asleep, and Christ was left alone to wrestle with God in prayer. Now suddenly his enemies are upon him, And they are led by the traitor Judas. And this is the portion that we consider this morning. And of course we're not doing so out of any mere historical interest. If it were that, it would be better than any other kind of use of time that we might have, any other history book that we might read. There is nothing so perfect as the history that we have in the Word of God. And there's nothing so interesting as the things that happen in the Word of God. But we don't do so merely in terms of a historical interest. we are interested in these events of his arrest because of what they show us about Christ. Now, most of us like pictures. My children are certainly that way. I think most of us are, and you why is it that we are so fascinated with pictures and Of course, in the digital age, we give that interest uh, free rein because we can take lots of pictures with our phones and we can see them in various formats. Why? Well, the idea even physically, and this is long time known in in art, is that in different light, in different situations, it shows us even something different physically about the person. Maybe in the bright morning, or in the the noon, or in the, the evening, or even in darkness we see something slightly different, in artificial light versus natural light about the person. And so, that no single portrait really captures everything about the person. And in as much as you want to see what the person looks like, you want to see them in different lights and different situations. And then much more so in terms of these situations with regard to the person's character. Right? So that you don't want to just see them as in a, a school portrait or you know, some sort of official portrait where everything is, is uniform and banal. What do they look like in, in some tropical place? What do they look like in the Arctic? What do they look like in this country or in America? What do they look like uh, at work? What do they look like at play? What do they look like in, in all the various kinds of situations that the world could possibly throw at us by their response? Their response, as, as captured in the picture, tells you something about the character. That's why you we have an infinite interest in... in pictures about people that we care about people that we love well so much more so with christ and the, the pictures that we get in christ you see are not physical ones and it's a point that we can never get away from god has not seen fit to give us pictures in fact he has forbade us from making pictures of christ something that we should particularly keep in mind in this time of year why because they won't tell us the truth about him. What we're given instead that we might see him is this whole work of redemption. Do you not understand that? That really everything that has ever happened in all of creation and in all of redemption is there to tell us about Christ that we might learn about him. And we think of, of all the things, all the things that happened in the Old Testament as we think about that pillar of light and that pillar of cloud that tells us about Christ. But how much more so than when we come to the Gospels and we see the Son of Man taking on human flesh. And how much more so as we see these events, as one thing happens to another, and as he is opposed, and as he must do this work now, and now as he he was there in Gethsemane praying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away. We are learning about him. In particular, friends, we are learning about him in darkness. We have in other times seen him in light and now we see a portrait of Christ in darkness. What is he like in the worst possible situation? What is he like when not merely he is being opposed by those who hate him and there is a company come to arrest him but they are led by a, a traitor? One of his own friends, Judas. What is he like When his friends try to, in a weak manner, try to protect him, what is he going to do when one of them cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest? his friends, we see his humility. We see his long-suffering mercy. We see his righteousness and justice, even in these things. And in all of it, we see his holiness, which is what we thought we would see. Isaiah saw it in the throne room of the living God. And we see it even as light is thrown onto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, even in the hour of darkness. This is the portrait of Christ in darkness with these three simple points the kiss, the sword, and the arrest. So, first of all, the portrait of Christ in darkness with the kiss. And verse 47, and while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, first of all, why was this whole thing necessary? Why was this whole charade? Why was this whole deal of Judas and, and uh, situation necessary? The answer is there's nothing special about Jesus in terms of his appearance. There is no comeliness or form in him that we should desire him, as it says in Isaiah. Neither in his physical features nor in the way he dressed was there anything sufficiently distinguishing about him that he could be identified, certainly not, in the dark. And so they needed somebody who knew him and knew him well to positively identify him in the dark, lest they get one of the other disciples because they really couldn't tell them apart. Again, a reminder that not only has God not chosen to give us a physical portrait, but that the physical portrait really wouldn't tell us much about the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyways, they have to positively ID him. And so that's why they send Judas. Now, why a kiss? Well, I guess, again, we, there's a couple of different explanations. On one hand, it's just because even Judas himself needed to get close enough in the pitch darkness to make sure he had the right one needed to give them a sign that could not be misunderstood. And so that's why. But in the larger picture, why? And this is something we're going to see that throughout this, this horrible humiliation, throughout this trial, throughout this, this crucifixion, we are going to see that it is, in essence, as bad as it could be. Right? It is all done for maximum humiliation of the Son of God. All of it. And so it would have been bad enough for him merely to have been arrested by nameless, faceless bureaucrats and functionaries. It would have been even worse by those who he may be gotten to know over time, maybe Nicodemus or so. But it was the worst to have one of his own lead this band to him. That is humiliating. You know, even in defeat there is sometimes honor that all of your people have stayed together, and we have we have fought together, and now we've lost together. But we're in it together. There is honor in that. But there is shame and humiliation that one of your own has so shamelessly sold you out for thirty pieces of silver, that princely sum. It's not much. And has personally led. The, the, this band of soldiers to his arrest, and he does so with a kiss. A kiss. You know, this thing is supposed to, this, this sign of a kiss is supposed to be a sign of affection. It's supposed to be demonstrated, demonstrating of love. And instead, it is there for murder. It's the instrument of murder. So thereafter, in all of Western culture, we, we speak of the kiss of death. And that's what it was. How ugly, how grotesque, how monstrous that this instrument of love has been turned into the instrument of death. So it has been in this hour of darkness. It is, in some sense, the worst thing that could happen at this time. Well, what is Jesus' response to such a dreadful, monstrous event? He says in verse 48, Jesus said to him, Judas... Are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Of course, the Lord had no problem recognizing Judas in the darkness there, nor did he have any problem recognizing what he was doing in it. And I guess you could say that his response were really A and B. His response A was to rebuke it in the form of a question, a question that makes clear just how terrible, how diabolical this act was. And this was often his way of rebuke. So often, uh, throughout the the Gospels, we see that he asks a question that demonstrates to anyone who would care to know just how foolish was their question, or how how wrong-headed was their line of thinking, or uh, to rebuke in general their sin and unbelief. Notice also the title that he uses of himself, the Son of Man. He used it so often, almost every chapter in one way or another, and Recently, when he was speaking about the end of the world, back in Luke 21, you remember the mini-apocalypse is speaking of the end of the world, and he says in Luke twenty-one twenty-seven, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Judas had heard these words a couple weeks beforehand, maybe a week beforehand, maybe a few days beforehand. And he had given them this stern warning in verse 36 of that same chapter Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Judas had heard that warning. Watch and pray that you escape because you're going to stand before the Son of Man when he comes in judgment. And here Judas is betraying the Son of Man. He is certainly not going to escape the judgment of this holy Son of God, this this Christ. And he is reminded of that. Because even in this moment, in his greatest weakness and humiliation, he has not ceased to be holy God. He has not ceased to be righteous and, and just. And he reminds this betrayer and passes sentence on him in this subtle way. He is the Son of Man, the one he's spoken of as coming to judge the living and the dead. And it is a very quick matter of time before Judas will stand before him in judgment. So, A, he rebukes it, and B, in accordance with his mission and his instructions, he permits it to happen. He permits it to happen. He did not prevent Judas from going through with it. And when Judas comes in all of his fake show of affection, he does not turn away from it, but allows Judas to actually kiss him. We're reminded again of his estate of humiliation. All manner of things, humiliating things, happen to the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. Merely being born was Humiliation enough for the Son, the eternal Son of God. And in all of his life in this fallen world, living among us, in all of our filth, in our lies, in our sin, in our weakness, day by day he endured humiliations of all kinds. And now, now he had to be kissed by the filthy lips of this, one of the most wicked men ever to live, in this greatest sin, in this act of humiliation. Why did he do it? It wasn't for himself. It wasn't for his health. Friends, it was for you. Whether it was to be smote on the cheek by the hands of the soldiers and the weapons in their hands, whether it was to receive in his hands the nails that would nail him to the cross, whether it was to receive this filthy man's kiss on his cheek, it was for you. It was for his people that he was humiliated that he was put to shame in every way known to man. And so in accordance with his mission, In accordance with the instructions that he had been given by the Father, he permits it. What love, what grace lay behind such submission, such humiliation. It was a love beyond all telling. It was a mercy and grace that is astonishing. Well, that's what we see of Christ in the kiss. Next, we... Consider what we see with regard to the sword. That's our second point, the sword. In verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Now, it's, in some sense, it's kind of easy to see why they would ask that question or why they might have had this thought. Because as you remember, it was just before this that Jesus had had this conversation in which he changed their instructions from what it was previously, don't bring any money, don't bring a change of clothing, don't bring, and don't bring a sword, to now I want you to bring a sword. Luke 22, verse 36. But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. Knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. And then in verse 38, they say, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Alright, so it, it makes sense. They asked, now, is this why you wanted us to have swords? You want us to use them. But of course, one of them did not wait for an answer. Because in verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Now we don't Luke does not make a point of telling us the names. But John does in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the particular things that he was given in his gospel. He makes a point not only of identifying Peter as the one who took the sword, but also of the servant. In John 18.10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, of course... Uh, the, The inspired authors of scripture had access to all things, so we shouldn't wonder too much that we know the name. But some have speculated that if indeed John knew this name Malchus and decided to draw attention to it, just maybe it was because he later became a Christian. And many have thought this, that later Malchus became a Christian. We have to consider maybe that possibility as we carry on. But first of all, let me just, let's now do the same thing that we did with regard to the kiss, which is what's the response to the sword? What does he do? Well, A, he permits it. Um, He says, permit even this. This meaning, my friends, you want to defend me from this arrest, and you have swords. And your thought is that maybe you're going to prevent this in this way. But Jesus says, no, permit even this. Again, we have to understand that as soon as he was in the hands of the soldiers, the rest of it was irrevocable. Uh, the, The rest of it was inevitable. It was all going to happen, including his crucifixion and death. And there was nothing that his disciples were going to do for him once he was nailed to that cross. And there was nothing that Christ himself was going to do to extricate himself, even though as we will later see there were always things at his hand should he have chosen to. But humanly speaking, ordinarily speaking, this was it. This was the moment. As soon as he was in the hands of that, those soldiers, that was it. And Jesus says, Permit even this. And friends, that tells us something about our God. It tells us that sometimes the answer of our God to the circumstances that come is permit even this. This was Christ's word to his disciples, but it was also the Father's word to the Son. It was the answer that he had been given just beforehand. So recent were these, was the answer of the Father to him. No doubt this came very easily to the sinless, holy Son of God. As he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass before I me. And the answer returns, permit, even this. And so he says to his disciples, permit that I should be given to the hand of these soldiers. But his other response, be besides his permission, which is amazing enough, was to heal this man's ear. That's a nice touch, isn't it? It had to happen, by the way, let me say. There could be no other blood sacrifice involved in that. There was enough of that. All since, since early days, since the very first day that man fell in the garden, you remember that from that day forward there have been blood sacrifices of animals, for instance. Some animal had to die in order that they have skins to clothe their nakedness. And from the time of Abraham, and particularly from the time of Moses, there have been animals that have been dying because of the sin of man. But it all pointed to the sacrifice of Christ. And there in that hour of darkness, as these things were coming, no one else could take any Uh, it it could take the place of what Christ was going to do no one could stand with him there could be no other blood sacrifice involved and so we have this very remarkable miracle there's nothing else like it in which he reattaches this severed ear and puts it all back in place and I, I, I believe that even the blood that was shed was restored to him there's no one was going to have a blood sacrifice on that time except the son of man well this act though again we never go far away from what we see about christ and what do we see about god well what do we what do we see about our god in these things and you understand that there is no god apart from the one that is revealed in the lord jesus christ and that, as i i've said we we have to be careful that we don't just take one portrait and say this is all of god because uh, we, we see aspects of him in different situations uh, and and we are finite and we can 't comprehend the, the the infinite God all in one, but friends you you see our God in this right? He says to those who would, who would who would defend him, permit this, let me be arrested and he goes over to the one who's been harmed in this, who is coming to arrest him who no doubt hates him. You see how the soldiers dealt with him later on. And we see the hatred and the contempt that they have for him. And what is his, what is his hand towards him? The, 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 the lips of Judas were those of a betrayer who was going to seal his fate and murder him with his kiss. The hands of the soldiers were there as those who were coming to arrest him and soon enough to beat and abuse him and soon enough to, to, put, to hand him over to be crucified. But his hand was to take this ear and put it back on. In love, he was doing good to his enemy. Friends, he, he was practicing what he preached. This merciful, this good God seen in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the very hour of darkness as one who, who is the, the great drops of sweat like blood are still on him. And yet, he picks up the ear and heals. That's our God. Merciful. Long-suffering. Well, we see Christ's In this darkness, we see in terms of the kiss, in terms of the sword, and yes, in terms of the arrest. In verse 52, And Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? I was with you daily in the temple. You did not try to seize me. But This is your hour and the power of darkness. Now we have to understand that what was happening here was not right, okay? Uh, this is not the way things normally operated. This is not the things normally the way that they go now today either, okay? Um, the excessive use of force, in essence, they had sent out the SWAT team as if Jesus was a violent and common criminal. They didn't need to do that, and they shouldn't have done so. And to do so under the cover of darkness in this lonely place. Again, why? Because they knew what they were doing was not right. And they did not want others to observe it. And they did not want to provoke the people into some sort of riot doing it. We know this is the whole point. This is the whole. This is their conundrum. They want to kill Jesus, but they're afraid of the people because they know that he is a prophet. Actually, many of them knew that he was a Christ, whether they followed him or not. And so they have to do this underhanded thing. They have to abuse their power. You understand that the power, the ministry of the sword, it is something that is given by God to this world. This fallen world to protect us. Yes, to uphold the good. To reward the good and to punish evildoers. That's what the, the power of the sword, the civil government has that in their hand. They have police and they have the military, and that is a good and God ordained thing. But they were abusing that power. And Jesus is not silent about it, He rebukes their unrighteousness and their abuses because He's the holy God. And he never ceased to be, even in the greatest hour of darkness. As again, he has poured out his, his heart and his soul in prayer. And he is in abject humiliation. He couldn't be any more humiliated in this hour, in this time than what he was. Yet he opens his, his voice, he opens his mouth to speak against this unrighteousness that was being done. So on the one hand, he rebukes it. But on the other hand, he yet submits to it. Pretty much the way we see in all these things. In his humiliation, he receives these things, he accepts them, he allows them to happen, but not without rebuking it. Judas comes with his kiss, he receives it, but he nonetheless rebukes Judas. And then there's the sword. And he rebukes his own disciples for taking up the sword. And he heals the damage that is done. And here, these people and their abusive and, and destructive use of power, he submits to being arrested. But he rebukes. And he says, I was with you daily. Here you are in the night. I was there every day if you wanted to come get me. Why didn't you do so then? and here I am unarmed and he was unarmed the others had a couple swords but he didn't and you've come out as against a robber with swords and clubs a teacher of the people as if you were a terrorist and friends we know this is the way that sometimes the state deals with Christians all over the world our brothers and sisters who are persecuted this is what happens to them that the very power that God has put into the hands of state for their protection, and he cares particularly that the state would protect his own people, in order that they might worship in peace, they are treated as common criminals, indeed as violent and dangerous criminals, and they come up against them with swords and clubs. Well, Jesus had to rebuke the unrighteousness of man because he never ceased to be holy God. And all these things prefigure the judgment. No word, no even suggestion that ever came from the lips of Jesus were ever come unfulfilled. It's not as if that those words had, had no meaning. We know that soon enough, those who had abused their power, the leaders who had sent those soldiers there, were going to stand before the Son of Man and answer for it. And in this we see his holiness. But on the other hand, he submitted to it. And what do we see in that? His holiness. His holiness. One who hated sin, yes. Enough to rebuke it on the one hand, but on on the other to die. Probably for some of those who were coming against him with the swords and clubs. More than likely, those we know certainly from Acts chapter 2, that many who had a hand in the death of Christ were going to become Christians. And so it might well have been, maybe, we know the name of Malchus because later he believed and became a believer and that Jesus in his holiness, in his hatred of sin and his desire to purge it from his people, to save it, was willing to submit to the the betrayal, was willing to submit to the arrest and all the abuse in order that he might die for those. And We know, friends, that this is in principle what is the case for us all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ did us good. Because he was perfectly holy. Righteousness and mercy together in the holiness of our God, seen in Christ, even in the hour of darkness. So, to apply these things to ourselves, we need to receive the grace of God. We need to receive it. Friends, God is the one who permitted such things to happen because of his grace and mercy to sinners like you and I. Again, Christ didn't do this for his health, he did not do this for a show, he did not do this for an example. Although these things are an example, the way that we interact with our enemies, yes, it's an example. But he did these things that we might be saved. What a beautiful thing. It could have been very different, you understand. It could have been very different. Our the justice of God would have been served, God would not have been inconsistent had he simply said, That is it. Judas's filthy lips have touched my sinless holy, and that is the end of it. And it just vaporized them. He could have, and that would have been the end of it, but he didn't. This is the grace of God. Friends, the day of salvation has been extended to you, you haven't been vaporized yet. Will you not receive this grace and this mercy? It's unbelievable. It's unlikely to me to last much longer, frankly. How long is he going to to remain long-suffering towards the sons and and daughters of men who have treated him in such a way and and, and deal with his law in contempt and slaughter the innocents? How long is that going to carry on in this world? How long are we going to push his patience? Before we repent. Friends receive the grace of God. In Christ. It's unbelievable. But it's true. And I urge you to receive it. Secondly I urge you to receive the sovereignty of God. And this is a picture we have throughout all these things. Look. If the Lord Jesus Christ could receive these things, if he could submit to the sovereignty of the Father, can't we do that much? Look in that hour of darkness, again, just dealing with it as a human being. Think about how bewildering, think about how crazy these things, how they unfolded. It did not seem right. Where was God in all these things? Just when it seemed like a ba- something bad enough had happened. Something worse happens, and we're not done yet. It's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. And if you don't believe in a sovereign God, then you are going to be in despair in this life. And the, the absolute worst happened to Christ, but we, he says that we share, we share, in a way, in his sufferings in this world. And that it is the will of God that his people suffer. And you must believe in the sovereignty of God. Look, if there are any Arminians among us today, those who believe that God is not really in charge, but God sort of submits to the free will of a man in in every sort of way, I, I don't have any animosity to you in the slightest. I have pity. This life is hard enough. When you are absolutely firmly convinced that God is in charge of every last thing, but if you don't even have that much, you are lost. You are lost. In the darkest hour when things are going wrong in every sort of way and, and the worst thing has just happened, you need to know that God is on the throne, friend. That he is utterly sovereign and that all of these things are to his glory. And somehow, in a way that you cannot possibly know or figure out in this hour of darkness, it is also for your good. You must receive the grace of God and you must receive, secondly, the sovereignty of God. And thirdly, I want you to reject darkness. Receive grace, receive sovereignty, but reject darkness. Have you ever noticed how that sinners love darkness? Notice what Jesus said, this is your hour. This is the hour, this is your time, this is the hour of darkness. Well, sinners love the cover of darkness, both physically and metaphorically. Why is it, friends, that there are no windows in nightclubs? We can drive on our, our way to Newcastle Christian School, and off to the right there's a section of Newcastle with a bunch of nightclubs. And they don't have windows, big, win, big building. No windows. If there are any windows, they're covered up. Why? Why? Because they want to conceal their wicked acts in darkness. Under the hopes that nobody is going to see them. And what is true for a nightclub physically can be true in other ways. One of the great problems, of course, of the internet. It's a powerful tool, isn't it? But it is the appearance it is the illusion of of darkness that no one sees or knows. And so we have a great epidemic of all sort of darkness and sin and wickedness in the Internet because of the darkness that it affords. Friends, God's people must reject the darkness. Genesis 1-2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. This is God's great gift to a dark world, even from the beginning, was light. The light that is Christ Himself. We know in the future there will be no need of the sun. Why? Because we have Christ, the very source of light, and He is ever with us. First 1 John 1:5. 1, this is the message we have heard from Him. And declare to you that God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. We must reject the darkness. We must embrace the light. And Thirdly and finally, or oh, sorry, fourthly and finally, if we receive grace and we receive sovereignty, but we reject darkness, fourthly, we we should rebuke unrighteousness as well. You know, the world will continually tell the people of God that we are being judgmental whenever we rebuke darkness and unrighteousness and sin. They will always tell us that why because they love their darkness. They do not want to que- us to question why there are no windows in that nightclub. They do not want us to question their deeds in any way. Because they love them. And they want them to remain under darkness. And they will accuse of, 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 of all manner of things. In order to get us to shut up. But beloved The Lord Jesus Christ in this dark hour when we knew his whole point. He knows the the sovereignty of God in dealing with this. He knows that this is God's will that he be betrayed even by his friend. It's God's will that he be arrested and brought into the hands of unrighteous men. Yet he rebukes Judas. He rebukes his own disciples. He rebukes the chief priests. He rebukes the Sanhedrin. He rebukes the the. The leaders at every point. It is not our job to go about in a, a self-righteous manner seeking only to do so in, in, a, in a purely offensive sort of way but when we are faced with the deeds of darkness it is our duty as those who walk in the light to rebuke the darkness. God has given that we might bear testimony against their deeds. That's why they hate us, by the way. Because we testify that their deeds are evil. That does not stop us from doing so. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have come to a place of darkness in order to see someone someone that they physically could not see. So they sent the betrayer, Judas, to point him out. And Lord, even in the hour of darkness, in the power of darkness, we see all the more the Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we see the living, eternal, ever-blessed, triune God. We see his amazing humility and mercy his love and grace, even in dealing with this man Malchus, his enemy, and we see his willingness to be humiliated and to suffer in order that he might save the unrighteous. On the other hand, we see that even in these things he rebuked the sin and the unrighteousness and abuse around him. Lord, what a holy God you are! What a holy God! how we pray that all would come to Christ. How can we imagine, how can we presume on your mercy and grace and forbearance even another day? We pray, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ, shown in his darkness, would prove to be immensely attractive to all who hear this message, that we would receive him, receive his grace, and forbearance, and believe in him. Lord, furthermore, that we would receive the sovereignty of God that we see in all these things, knowing that you are on the throne. But Lord, rather, we would reject darkness, and as we have particular opportunity and calling, to rebuke it as well. And We pray that all these things would be done to the glory of God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.